Brian Holland's The Big Bad Wolf here with the plugs for episode 72. We're very excited at the moment because the Winning Agendas Patreon Facebook group is getting a lot of traction. It's really great to hear from so many of our Patreon supporters about their ongoing success, their trials and tribulations during the current store champion season. If you would like to join this secret society, this shadowy cabal... If you will, all you have to do is jump onto patreon.com slash the winning agenda and sign up to support us. And access to the Facebook group is the lowest reward tier at $2 per month. Or if you'd rather just hook yourself up with some mean winning agenda swag, you can jump onto inkedplaymats.com, type the winning agenda into the search bar and hook yourself up with a sweet, sweet winning agenda playmat. And if you do so, send us a photo. We love seeing people having fun playing Netrunner with TWA stuff. That's all I've got this week, so please enjoy episode 72 of The Winning Agenda. Good evening and welcome to episode 72 of The Winning Agenda. Tonight our panellists include 2015 Regional Champion and 2015 Australian Nationals Top 8 Competitor Wolfie Horrig. Hi, what's up? 2014 Australian National Champion and 2014 World's Top 16 Competitor Jesse Marshall. Hello. Uh, 2015 Regional Top 8 Competitor Hollis Echo. Hey, good morning. And I'm your host Brian Holland and before we get started tonight, I'm going to pass it over to Jesse Marshall who's got some very, very exciting news to share with everybody. Yes, uh, so our, our listeners may have heard of the ANRPC, the Android Netrunner Players Circuit, uh, previously known as the Android Netrunner Pro Circuit. Uh, it's a series of tournaments that's run in North America, Europe and the UK. And the aim of the tournaments is to provide support for more players to attend Worlds than just those who win national championships. It's sort of an alternate circuit that runs alongside the official FFG tournaments. Uh, The new circuit that we're announcing in Australia is an expansion of the ANRPC, and it's called the Support Australian Netrunner Send an Aussie North Circuit, uh, (laughs) also known as the San San Circuit. The San San Circuit. (laughs) Was that a coincidence? Very convenient. Yeah, yeah we we just had a really important message that we wanted to send about supporting Australian Netrunner, and it just turned out Sansan. Yeah, everything's turning out Sansan. Send an Aussie say? North. Uh, so, for all of our Australian listeners, uh, if you want to be involved and potentially get yourself another chance to win some uh, funds towards your trip to Worlds then check out your local store, uh, ask them if they're running a Sansan Circuit qualifier, and if they are interested and we haven't been in touch with them, you can ask them to send us an email at thewinningagenda at gmail.com and we can get in touch with them. The format is going to be a normal tournament, except the first three prizes are invites to the finals. The finals will be held in Melbourne, and the prizes at the finals will be first and second place will get a split of the cash prize as well as some sweet ANRPC loot that we'll be acquiring yeah. from our friends at the ANRPC in the US. Yeah, quick shout out to them. Great guys. This is, uh, yeah, this is all very good. I can't wait to travel down to Australia in hopes to winning the qualifier that will send me from Australia back to the US. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be gas. <clears throat> all right, uh, moving on to uh, our first segment tonight, we're going to talk about uh, agro-corp strategies. We, we haven't talked about... Um, any of the individual sort of uh, overarching strategies being aggro, mid-range, or control for a while. So we thought before we delve into this, or perhaps while we're delving into it, we'll go on about uh, aggro and what we mean by that. So, Wilfie, what's, what do we mean by aggro? Okay, so I guess the simplest way to think of it is that an aggressive corp is one that's trying to end the game before the runner can um, get set up 
with their rig or not necessarily just their rig but their uh, their resources that allow them to get accesses um the corp is trying to end the game before the runner can do that in order to push their early game advantage. Recently, we've seen a lot more examples of corps trying to win the game early uh, because damage has become a little more difficult and Anarchs have become more resilient due to I've had worse. What we mean by an aggro deck is that the corp will try to be trying to score those seven points early and give up some capacity to keep the runner out in the late game. Aggro is one of three main overarching strategy types that we talk about. Aggro is the the fast one you've got mid-range and then you've got control so whereas a control deck will try and um, build up an advantage in the long game that gives them some sort of inevitability and they want the game to go long an aggro deck will sacrifice the capability to do that by using cards that are very good early very cheap and have just the effect that you want at the start of the game but will be a lot less useful later on in terms of the neh decks wolfie one of the interesting one of the interesting uh, decisions you have to make as an aggro deck is how aggro you can be without giving up uh too much to the sort of mid-range runner strategies or even the aggressive runner strategies you can dedicate a lot of your deck slots to purely trying to win the game fast but you can then leave yourself open to cards like medium that can punish you for having ice that's too porous or perhaps having no ice at all and there are a host of runner cards that can punish corps for ignoring their central servers so as an aggressive corp just because of the way the Netrunner game is, you do have to make some defensive plays as well because the corp is often on the defensive to some degree. So how do you go about structuring your aggressive decks, Wilfie, and finding that balance between aggression and purely trying to win the game as fast as possible, but also not leaving your centrals too vulnerable? Right, I guess the point is that no matter how aggressive your deck is, either on the runner side or the corp side, you can't realistically end the game before your opponent has the chance to do anything at all. For runners, it's not possible to just steal seven points in every game before your opponent can get their defenses set up. And for corpse, it's not possible to just score out behind a Sansan while your opponent is just floundering looking for any sort of icebreaker. So there's always going to be some sort of reaction on either the runner side or the corpse side. So what we mean by aggro is not to ignore reacting to your opponent's game plan entirely, but to primarily be proactive and have your reactive measures, that is, defending your central, um, say, in response to a medium threat, come specifically in response to a threat that you think might put your opponent over the edge in terms of being able, being faster than you, rather than preemptively protecting your centrals so that don't bleed points early. I think that's the main, or I'm not sure if that's the main, but I think that's something very important touch on and that's unique to netrunner i think as a game in the sense that the win condition for the runner being the agendas in the corpse deck isn't necessarily all available at once so that the game has an inbuilt mechanism to protect against the game ending too early in that sense right exactly does that make sense yeah whereas other games don't necessarily have that i don't know if we want to talk about other games i don't know if we're thinking of any in particular (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like that definitely is right, but I don't know how deeply we want to talk about comparison to other games. I think that element of having to make some concessions to the structure of the game is very important when you're thinking about constructing your deck. Because as you say, um, as a corp, you can't necessarily rely on drawing those seven agenda points before the runner can make any runs or before the runner has any chance to do anything impactful. And so you need to be aware when you're constructing your deck what the threats are that are going to give your opponent a reasonable chance 
of accessing the agendas before you have a chance to draw and score them. And when we talk about medium, we do that because that's one of the most obvious examples of a card that punishes a corp really hard for having an undefended R&D and allows the runner access to an escalating number of cards, which is going to allow them to do exactly that and end the game before you can execute your game plan. Right, and medium is kind of indicative of the format at the moment just because the wizard decks or noise decks basically any of the anarchs which we have talked about countlessly recently because they're so good try to get into a situation where they can medium you up to three counters so medium run 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 and then next turn you have to spend your re- whole, whole turn defending r&d and then they can probably still run at least once which means that your defenses have basically become useless so without cyberdex virus suite or any sort of way to purge without taking actions it's really hard to defend against medium and so i think that's why the aggressive corp decks at the moment really have to kind of hope in some sense that your opponent is not going to be successful on r&d not that r&d isn't going to be fruitful and i think that's one of the main reasons why runners are so strong at the moment is that they can present such a threat with medium that the corp has to spend their, all their resources defending and even then it's not enough sorry i just want to make one more point about um mid-range and aggression and why i think those runner decks the fast wild cakes decks the reason those decks are extremely powerful is that they can be aggressive or they can compete with your medium-sized ice in the mid-game very efficiently with Faust and David, which makes them a very efficient mid-range deck as well. So they're sort of a hybrid aggressive mid-range deck, slightly lacking in the on the aggressive side because they do sometimes struggle for economy and to access the right cards in the early game, but certainly no more than any other runner does. That's just something that's intrinsic to the runner. I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but do you think that the current you know, builds of Anarch that we're talking about, you know, the Faust, David, Wildcakes engine, do you think they cannot also be classified as a control deck because they do get to the point where that is that inevitability? Because we no, talked sorry. about in our... Well, we, we did talk about in our previous episodes you guys thinking the Earth Hub was the best way to go because if you give the Anarchs enough time to set up, it doesn't matter what your ice is. It can be very blanked very easily. And that's a lot of the time what we talk about when we say, you know, a, a, a control deck will have that inevitability in the late game. Because, yeah, you know, in the late game, I'll... they will definitely have their Faust, they'll definitely have their David, and they should ideally have their engine up. Is it just because their deck will not be there for them to power the Faust for as long? So there's two reasons. One, I think, is that these decks are actually so good in the mid-range phase of the game that as a corp, you cannot rely on taking them consistently to the late game, and that's why they're so good against control decks. There is such a high chance they are going to be able to introduce to the game or access from R&D enough agendas to win the game early enough that any sort of defensive corp strategy is not going to be enough to keep them out. So it's not that they reach some point of inevitability much later on due to their accumulated resource advantage, which is what we would typically talk about when we meet a control deck. And that's what that control corp deck is trying to do. It's trying to set up ice progressively, create a situation where the runner can't consistently make runs, and that gives them some sort of scoring inevitability in their remote. Faust, Wildcakes decks take that option away from the corp by so efficiently 
being able to get past any gear checks early, get past any mid-strength ice in the mid-game, and make really punishing multi-access runs on R&D that very rarely allow the game to get to the late game at all. Would you say, uh, what would you say to the people who think that the fact that most good decks both on the runner and corpse side transcend more than one category so i guess what i would say to them is that the system that we're using to talk about these strategies is not supposed to be something that you can clearly classify the decks in one of those three strategies it's supposed to just show that in any deck when you're building it it's more a sort of deck building and understanding your deck tool and understanding your strategy and thinking about what your deck is best tool to do in each matchup and what your best chance of winning is so If you've tooled your deck so that you don't play any ice that's good at protecting centrals and you know that you can't protect effectively against a medium and you're trying to score with astrobiotics very quickly, you know that you are as aggressive as aggressive can be and you must win the game early in order to win it all. Otherwise, you are very likely to lose to something like medium or central multi-access. So it's a way to understand your strategy and what you need to do to win. On the other hand, once you start making compromises and concessions to those runner strategies, so you start adding in little engines or the Eli's or the Itchies, you know that you've slowed your deck down a bit. You've meant it means that you're investing more money in your ice, which means you're less likely to be able to res those sand sands. There's going to be turns when you can't biotic that astro out where you otherwise would have been able to. So you know that on average, your game plan is going to be a little bit slower. And when you're designing that deck and considering the metagame, You need to make a call about whether the speed is more important or that protection and those concessions to the other side strategies are more important. Right, and so you would say, or I would say maybe uh, that it would be more useful to look at this paradigm as a spectrum rather than as three discrete categories. As we discussed just um, a moment ago, the Faust Wildcakes decks have certain capabilities depending on what your deck design choices are, can have capabilities in all three phases of the game or all three styles of play. And if you want to emphasize one or the other of them, you can do that in the way that you construct your deck. Right. If you look at the spectrum, they sit on a very fat point. Part of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. which is if you want to look at it that way, the reason why they're so good. Exactly. Because one thing we also discussed earlier on is as the corp, you want to be pulling yourself as far away from the runner in one of the two directions of aggression or control as you can. So if you've got a runner deck or archetype that has the capability to sit to some degree across all three of the strategies and depending on some individual deck choices... Uh, will pull more towards one or, or the other. It makes it very difficult for the corp to judge what their best mode of attack is from the start of the game. Um, and it makes it very difficult uh, for them to decide how to go about winning. The other way that you can be aggressive as the corporation and try and end the game early is through meat damage. And that functions in the aggressive phase of the game, more so in the mid-range sort of style of build because a lot of the consistent ways to tag and kill the runner if you're using Scorched Earth tend to require some assembly and require you to be on a large number of credits. So you can have that sort of mid-range element, but you, I think the, the ones that we're going to focus on today are the more aggressive ones, uh, the decks that play sort of fewer ice. We've seen some NBN decks uh, that are trying to revive the sort of butcher shop archetype but are only playing somewhere between 10 and 13 ice, which is quite few. And we've also got uh, the Argus security archetype which I'll talk about a little bit later. But on that NBN archetype, Hollis, you've played a few games with that. How have you found the ability of that deck to end the game quickly in that 
using that sort of aggressive strategy to try and kill the runner before they have a chance to set up. As you guys mentioned, um, obviously decks the decks that utilize you know uh, Wild Cakes, Faust, David. Um, have such a broad spectrum as far as how they're like efficient during, uh, throughout the game. It makes it very, very difficult for you as a corp to actually compete with that level of aggression and basically that level of consistency that's involved basically from the from the beginning of the game when they be, when they go aggro to their mid game and late game control. Some of the best mitigation I have found has simply been to number one run a series of cards that will actually tag the runner, where basically it redu- it reduces the likelihood of them being able to play viable resources out at the time they would like to to begin that aggression. And number two, slow down their game plan by either destroying some of their programs, destroying cards in their hand, or removing the resources in play that would allow that engine to continue and maintaining that aggression. In terms of like, in the case of MBN, even something as simple as having a deck that's designed to use multiple data ravens and then having a scorch combo as a secondary as a secondary kill strategy does can do volumes versus this this particular kind of matchup because what you're doing is as a result of t- um, trying to overtax them with the amount of credits they have to make sure they protect their own resources, you basically reduce the amount of aggression they have and then on top of that you add an additional threat that makes them essentially have to slow down in order to not lose the game outright. What I'm finding is that in, in, in any age decks that are tend to, that tend to run something like a mid-season, you're going to find that wizard decks often uh, are able to make a lot of successful runs because there's not really much ice you have that will completely mitigate and stop it completely. Something that allows them to be able to make a run, spend a fair amount of credits, and then force the removal of tags means that any agenda they score works in a different direction on your side as the corp where you're able to get a mid-season come uh, mid-season and land them with multiple tags and this also means that any further resources they play from that point going forward are now vulnerable and then you add that to the threat of things like scorch and traffic accident it means that though they have some meat damage protection it forces this really um it can force a, a fair amount of slow play that basically brings more of that control on the corpse side back to you. The tags are playing two roles. One is they're allowing you to kill the opponent, and the other is the intrinsic ability of tags that allows you to trash resources. Now, that is something over the history of these sorts of decks that hasn't tended to be as consistently useful as the ability to kill the runner. But when you've got the most prevalent deck in the runner metagame, playing some key resources that it needs to run its engine, those tags become a lot more useful. That's 100% what it is. With Faust, the engine that you're going to find that is the most effective is the, you know, uh, wild side, uh, just a chronotype deck. And, and Faust, you know, getting so many cards for effectively nothing, turn after turn after turn, is what allows them to keep up that level of aggression. Now, you start running either tags or even um, a very uh, specific edge case card, like something like Elizabeth Mills. At the right time, you punish them being super aggressive or I guess really far too aggressive too early. And you can slow the game down now to the point where you as the corp can try to pull some of that control back away from the runner, and you sort of uh, remove how broad that scope is for what that deck is capable. And that's what we talk about when we mean tempo. So the reason that Wild Side Adjusted Chronotype is such an important tempo card is that it condenses multiple turns of what a runner would otherwise be able to do into a single turn because you're drawing two cards for free at the beginning of your turn and that opens up not just two clicks worth of extra options but often many more options because having cards in your hand when you have faust equals invulnerability to breakers most of the time and running early in your turn is generally better than running late in your turn against a variety of decks as well uh, i just have a question does anyone know why adjusted chronotype is an orange card no <laughs> it makes very little sense to me. Sort of, uh... <laughs> 
it's as bad as Street Peddler. I'll never get over yeah. it. Uh, yeah, Wilfie's got <laughs> color pie issues with adjusted chronotype <laughs> being an Anarch card, and I tend to agree. Yeah, so that, on that idea of tempo, I think that's a, a really important concept that goes back to what we were talking about with mid-range and why this is such a good mid-range deck. So if you look at other games that have this concept of uh, mid-range decks uh, in another card game which shall not be named you'll often see them called aggro control decks which is obviously an amalgamation of aggressive and control indicating mid-range what an aggro control deck will often try and do is in in that other game which is magic the gathering is control the tempo of its opponent's plays such that they aren't able to develop their board and their plan as quickly as you are able to develop your board and your in netrunner one of the key ways that you can do that because the rather than being restricted in sort of how many cards you can play each turn, you're restricted by how many actions you can take. If you're getting free actions every turn, every single turn with Wildside and Adjusted Chronotype, you're able to develop your game plan and do so much more in every one of those turns than the Corp is. So as the Corp, exactly as you're saying, Hollis, if you can break down that engine, you will be gaining yourself an immense amount of tempo back which will buy you a number of turns at that key point in the game when the runner deck is trying to do as much damage as it can. Yeah, and I I kind of feel like at this at this stage of uh, at this stage of like where the meta is right now, we're in this really unique position where um, before we would not really consider a lot of you know cards before cards like Elizabeth Mills were very edge case. There were very much cards that we didn't really want to actually go the route of of sliding in decks because they were they were just so specific to a particular matchup. And in this case, I think that that engine, I'm just going to I wish I think someone we should just come up with the name. I'm, I'm I want to say Dumblefork engine, but I don't know another another name to call it. I guess just Wildcakes. The Wildcakes engine is just so is so is so prevalent and it is so powerful. It seems that that we're at this point where you need to be considering slotting in even if it's not Elizabeth Mills when you when you build an NBN deck, when you build um, an HB deck even. We need to consider cards that are going to break that engine down and give the corp the available windows they need to basically continue with the strategy that they really were planning to play with in the first place. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons that corps have started doing that, Hollis, is that when we talked about the Anarch engine being able to be constructed in a way to pull more towards the control side or pull more towards the aggro side, what we saw over the last couple of weeks in the Corp metagame is that every Corp was trying to go fast. Everyone was playing Astrobiotics. Everybody was trying to be as fast as possible. And so that allowed the uh, Anarch players to skew their decks towards that aggro side, to drop some of their defenses against damage, to drop some of their slower cards and just try and play as fast as possible. And they ended up coming to 50-50, sometimes better than 50-50, even against Astrobiotics. And what that meant is that there was this space opened up in the metagame for those slower mid-range or control corp strategies to take advantage of that and try and pull the Anarch decks back in the other direction. Or rather than than pulling them back in the other direction, I guess the right metaphor is what I said earlier, which is to create as much space between the speed they're trying to play at or the strategy they're trying to use and the defenses that the Anarch deck has available to it and the speed that it's trying to play at. We mentioned last week, uh, we discussed just for, we, we touched just for a moment on like a, uh, the bootcamp Glacier deck that was uploaded by Bloom, And it's, you know, very clear that normally uh, decks like that, Vegan Wayland, um, though had seen some success, were not very popular in the meta. They had not been very popular in the meta. Um, it, it, it was very much a pet deck of some people. But at this stage in the game, you see the rush strategies in place where it's basically... Early game, you try to kill the wild side, 
and you throw something behind um, a multi-sub piece of ice and cross your fingers. You know, like that, that tends, and while, while that doesn't necessarily seem consistent, and it seems like, um, it seems like, you know, it definitely has room to fail. The fact is, when you've eliminated that, that engine, the wild, the wild cakes engine, all of a sudden a hive into an agenda means they don't start their turn with seven cards. They may only have four now. So getting into that server seems a very, very difficult task now because you're going to lose the money to put that wild side back. And now the cards that that free engine you were getting is now requiring you to lose cards from your hand and you're not getting that, that those free acts. And in, in, in most corp games, of course, a lot of times you're playing for the one turn window or two turn window that you can, you can open up. Other than speed, the other side of things that's changed, as we mentioned earlier, is trying to bring back the, the meat damage threat which can happen just as quickly as scoring out seven points. How have you found that that's played out for your yellow decks that are playing Scorched Earth? Is it something that's been consistent enough or just something that's sort of a backup that works sometimes? My initial concern, you know, when I was trying to look at that, any decks running that Wild Cakes engine versus a deck that was all in on Scourge, my understanding, you know, I was looking at just the available cards that would help mitigate this. So I was looking at, I've run three, I've had worse. I run the Plastic. So the likelihood of being able to kill me here, you know, is, is very, very low. What I'm finding is that even with those resources in my hand, the fact remains is those cards are actually very much used as resources to use, to enhance their aggro strategy. So very often, you know, those, even though those cards can be looked at as defensive cards, a lot of times you'll find that I've had worse, that I, I've had worse cards are simply used just to make sure they have the great boost for Faust in a single turn. They're not being patient. Um, they're not being patient enough, or they're unlikely to be patient because the normal strategy, the mentality of playing a deck like that as an aggro deck, is go, 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 go. Be aggressive. Mm. Don't slow down. You have absolutely touched on a key point there. I think, and it's in my opinion, one of the things that's going to make these meat damage decks uh, suffer in the next couple of weeks is that people have adjusted their playstyle so much to just playing against faster biotics and other scoring decks they've sort of lost their memory about how to play against kill decks and once we start seeing kill decks come back into the meta game runner decks may slow down a bit in terms of their deck construction but they'll also slow down a bit in terms of their play style and they'll start holding on to those i've had worses a bit more and they'll start making smarter plays and once that happens you really have to question whether the four influence on scorched earth in nbn decks that are already more stretched because of mwl is really worth it yeah um and i think it's not i think um one thing that we've touched on is that the the tags and the disruption to the wild cakes engine may actually be just as important because it's more consistent than trying to kill using the tags in the current metagame so it may be that you can play the tagging cards without the tag punishment which is something that we haven't seen be very good before and then still spend your influence on your Astros, your Sansans, or, or your Biotic. All right, so up next, we're going to briefly uh, do a deck tech on the Food Coats archetype. Since the, since the Most Wanted list, uh, it's taken a bit of a beating. Uh, two of the key ice in the deck that were most important, Architect and Eli, were both put onto the list, which did stretch the influence a little bit, and it meant that playing the second Caprice was a little bit more difficult, or at least you had to consider whether you wanted those premier ice, shall we say, or whether you valued the the second Caprice more. So we've all been playing around with a version of the deck. It was something that is based off Dave Hoyland's list that he played to third place at Worlds. We've made the decision to cut the second Caprice and go with one Caprice and keep in two Architects and three Elis. So the reason that we've done that is that 
Eli is just so important. Yeah, we, I think everybody understands why Eli is very good and very important. But I guess the, the takeaway message is that kept Eli and Architect in the deck is that they both do things more efficiently than any other piece of ice in the same category. And they both do really important things. Architect punishes face checks early. It's a really good thing to have against those Anarch decks when they haven't got their fast out yet. It can sometimes be as good as an extra turn from the installs that you get plus the credit from ETF installing off off turn if you like. So we've made the decision that those two cards are I guess irreplaceable and whilst losing the second Caprice is frustrating, you've still got one which means that at the time you really want Caprice which is later when the uh, runner deck, when your ashes are less reliably going to keep them out over a whole turn, uh, you can use your Caprice hopefully to score out the Global Food Initiative. The other influence is spent on the Global Food Initiatives themselves, the namesakes of the deck, three Jackson Howards, and a Chrysium Grid. Chrysium Grid is very important against keyhole strategies, against account siphon strategies, and any other things that are trying to uh, leverage central attacks, really, that are going to do you a lot of damage in terms of developing a game plan. Then you've got the uh, rest of the sort of food coats suite, which is three Ash, three Breaker Bay Grid, three Adonis Campaign, three Eve Campaign for developing your remotes and getting your money online. We've got three Accelerated Beta Test, three Vitruvius, one Advanced Concept Hopper, replacing the NAPD because of the influence that allows us to then play the Chrysium Grid. We've got uh, an Archive Memories, one or two Biotic Labor, depending on our lists. And on the Ice side, we've cut the Assassins down to one and replaced the other two of them with Vikrams, which we found to be extremely useful. Uh, Brian talked a little bit about Vikram last week, and I can echo his sentiments that I think for one less credit than Assassin, and every credit's important, uh, it fulfills a very similar a role and it can be just as punishing uh, if not more so at different stages of the game i know that adonis eve breaker bay and ash are kind of the core of the deck but do you think that now with the rise of dumble fork which is really hostile to those kind of cards so that is uh, assets specifically assets and upgrades specifically those with three or less trash cost uh, that need to be in remotes to be good uh, do you think that the rise of that deck has maybe pushed you to want to use more operation economy like i know it has for many many corp decks so the thing about this particular build hollis you can chime in remote it sounds like you've got a slightly different view on this but my view is that breaker bay grid is powerful enough particularly with eve campaign that if you can get that behind a turing or an eli early it's very difficult even for those dumble fork decks to profitably get in and deal with it before you've at least got some benefit because Wizard you know, is only giving you three recurring credits and it's seven to trash and even a ba- breaker bay plus the cost of getting through whatever ice you've got there. Uh, it can still put you in a reasonably favorable tempo position even if they do get in. Right, so I guess the point is that the ice is strong enough that you can fairly easily in the early game set up a remote that takes advantage of those cards before the uh, Dumblefork deck can snipe them out of your hand or your centrals? Yes, and Breaker Bay Grid makes the initial res cost and tempo loss from your campaigns null, except to the extent that you have to install your Breaker Bay Grid and that takes some tempo off you. What that does is it means that you can play them out a lot more aggressively and you're obviously not losing as much when you do res them on your turn on the turn that you res them. In fact, if you can keep them on the board for just one turn, and then you do res them, you're actually gaining credits at that point. More off Adonis than Eve, but Adonis has the additional vulnerability. What the Dumblefork decks do 
is they stop you from being able to remote spam to have multiple campaigns in play, which can be annoying. And as you said earlier, they can also snipe them out of your R&D or HQ. However, when I play this deck, I often find that I don't need more than one remote and you can afford to have a campaign sitting in the server that you're developing as a scoring server with an Ash, a Breaker Bay grid, and layering the ice turn by turn using your ETF ability so that you're hopefully keeping up on tempo with the Dumble Fox deck's ability to attack that remote and developing your game plan all the while. I think it's kind of interesting to to draw this sort of parallel. We have the Wild Cakes engine, which is very much dependent on you getting these free actions. So you're getting these, you know, which it creates free actions where you're basically drawing cards. At least in, in like Food Coats deck lists, Breaker Bay Grid has sort of done this, where it kind of allows you to gain economy that is very similar to what you would what you could potentially gain from like operation based econ cards. Because effectively, the as- the combination of the HB Identities ability, sorry, Engineering the Future's ID ability, combined with the, the just the installation of these cards and the way Breaker Bay interacts with Ash, Eve Campaign, Adonis Campaign, all those cards are res for free, so it's off-click economy that's gaining you credits similarly to what you would gain if you played some low-level operations at no cost. It's a two-card combo that effectively is gaining you off-click advantage that would normally you that would normally be clicking for credits or have this upfront investment at first before you started making a profit off of this. And that feels pretty good. It does. So even if you've got one piece of ice, an Eve campaign, a Breaker Bay grid, and an Ash, only the clicks to install. Yep. There's no other credit cost for you there. Right. In and terms of raising the cards in the server. I agree with that. I'm, no, I'm noticing that when I play, when I am playing the, this food coats list um, versus that particular matchup, it's very rare that I'll have more than one remote at a time. And generally, the Ash is going to drop into the remote um, around the same time the economy cards go in. I will basically just let the economy begin to tick up with the combination of Aiden Breaker Bay. And I'm not afraid to res the, the economic cards, like Adonis especially, without Breaker Bay, if I feel like it's protected enough to where they're not going to want to try to make that run to lose the, the card resources just to be blocked by the Ash that's at the server as well. That's not to say that those matchups aren't hard. I think the deck does suffer against Faust and against Wizard, particularly, because... You, your centrals are can be rendered vulnerable by cutlery. So any uh, any deck that's playing larger ice, things that cost three, four, five, six credits, is going to really struggle if the runner's permanently removing those ice from the board after they're resed. Because as I was saying earlier, particularly with ETF, you're looking to develop and layer your ice over the course of the game. And if that's being undermined by your ice being destroyed or trashed by cutlery, that really severely hampers your ability to develop the inevitability that you want in the late game. Um, So I guess, yeah, that's a a long-winded answer to your question, Wilfie, that campaigns may not be hurt in and of themselves too much by the Dumblefork strategy, but the overall inevitability that you're trying to build using your towering remote plus upgrades is hurt by the fact that that deck can destroy your ice. That makes sense. I, I always like to make a note about Food Coats in that is that uh, I feel like Food Coats is, is actually fairly well placed in the meta right now. If you're not attempting to rush out or use a kill strategy that is you know similar to what we see from NB Index a lot of the time, Food Coats is sort of this all-around good good deck where you know if you're not versus if you're not versus any deck with the Wild Cakes engine, the economy is very efficient. The ID ability is always going to be good, right? Generally, you can make a deck that has a fair amount of protection at a, f- a reasonable cost, and the economy itself is going to gain you off-click econ with with debt with amazing drip. So it's kind of worth it. And versus decks with wild cakes combos, um, you have a level of protection with cards like Ash and Caprice to where you can carve out the window necessary 
even if they're trying to hit you know a very a particular server consistently. I, I personally think the deck is actually well placed in the meta, and it's one of the few decks that doesn't have to harshly go towards a whole different line of play in order to be able to stand its ground versus decks that are wild cakes decks. And I think if we were to take that back to our aggro control mid-range discussion, one of the annoyances for this deck, as we said, is losing its ice. And that's an example of a an aggressive or mid-range runner strategy being able to disrupt that control strategy. So this is a control deck that's trying to pull itself as far in the other direction as possible, play very slow, play very defensively. And the runner decks are adapting by playing tools that break down that strategy, not at the very end, but all the way along to slow it down and prevent that inevitability from building up. That's one of the dangers that I've found is finding the right time to develop your scoring windows can be really hard at the moment with this deck. I think that's just about all we have time for. Our host, Brian Holland, has been... uh, Possibly some sort of full moon incident turned into a werewolf. Who knows? We, we can't really tell. Unfortunately, we're communicating over Skype here. We hope that all is well and that he's had his potion, uh, but we can't attest to that for sure. So unfortunately, you're going to have to make do with me wishing you all a good evening from us at The Winning Agenda. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and we look forward to continuing this discussion about the court metagame and about Netrunner in general over the next week. We'll see you next week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>